Well, thank you to Andy and Shay and the leaders at Grace Church for inviting me this year. Grateful to be here. Um, for those of you who have no idea who I am, I used to live in Kingsburg a, a few years ago, and I was part of Grace Church. Uh, I worked on staff at Grace Church. I love this church, and so I love every opportunity that I have to come back and to minister in any way that I can. I especially enjoy coming back. Uh, and now this is my second time ministering here at, at River of Life. Uh, so I'm excited to be here, excited to open God's Word with you guys uh, today. So let's go ahead and do that. Before we do, let's ask one more time for the Lord's help. Father, we pray for your Spirit to give us understanding tonight. Lord, I pray for these students, some of them here are blind to the truth about Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would work a miracle in their hearts, that you would open their eyes to behold his glory, that they would place their faith in him, that they would recognize that without him, their soul will never be satisfied. The deep thirst in their soul will never be quenched. So I pray that you would show them that Christ alone can satisfy them, that they would run to him for the forgiveness of their sins and be saved. And for those who know Christ, I pray they'd be encouraged, that they would be reminded that the things of this world can't satisfy them, but that if they run to Christ again and again, they will always find satisfaction in him. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, I trust you've all enjoyed the last few weeks of River of Life, uh, considering the theme, Never be thirsty again. And of course, coming to the final week of River of Life, I'm going to continue that theme of never thirsting again. Uh, but as we bring this year's River of Life to close, what I want to do is I want to point us to the future. Uh, I want to look beyond this world to the world to come. I want to see what God has in store for thirsty souls. Uh, and so to get the full effect of God's plan for the future, what we actually have to do is we have to look back. And so that's what we're going to do. Uh, the, the end of a movie is never really all that good unless you've seen the beginning of the movie, right? And so that's what we're going to do first tonight is we're going to go and we're going to look back. Uh, I don't know if you guys are old enough and you... Did anybody have a VHS player in their home growing up? Okay, that's more than I thought. Uh, I had a VHS player growing up. And we had a separate device that we would put the VHS tape into it, and it would rewind it really fast. Anybody have one of those? All right. Well, that's what we're going to be doing with God's story tonight. We're going to be sticking the story in the rewinder. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis. And we're going to see how the story started. And then we're going to put the, the tape back in, and we're going to fast forward to the end. And the time that we're going to spend tonight, most of our time, we're going to spend in the book of Revelation. So... Let's begin by looking back. Uh, believe it or not, there was a time when everything was good. Uh, there was a time when the world was perfect and man was fully satisfied. At the end of the six days of creation, God looked at everything that he had made and he declared that it was very, it was very good. Everything that he made, he looked and it said that it was very good. He had created a perfect universe and he gave Adam and Eve this perfect playground of a universe for them to rule over it for God's glory and for their everlasting enjoyment. It was a place of life and joy and peace and pleasure, 
a place of full satisfaction. It was all of these things because it was a place where God and man dwelled together and perfect fellowship. But then in the most devastating act of human history, Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. They chose to eat of the fruit that was forbidden rather than to enjoy eternal fellowship with God. This was the entrance of sin into the world. And this was the very first time that Adam and Eve experienced an unquenchable thirst. And as a result of the sin, the whole world was placed under a curse. Genesis 3.17 says, Cursed is the ground. This is God speaking. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. And so sin brought a curse on creation. Because of sin, weeds grow in our gardens. Earthquakes destroy nations. Floods wipe out villages. Famine leaves children starving. Cancer wrecks our bodies. Genetic mutations deform people. All of this is a result of the curse that sin brought upon the world. This is the world that we live in, and no one can deny that this is a broken world, especially in light of the events that we've seen in these past few years, not to mention what just happened yesterday in France. The world is simply not the way that it should be. Most devastating, though, was what happened to man's relationship with God. Because of sin, no longer would man enjoy perfect fellowship with God. Sin ruined our relationship with God and left us with an unquenchable thirst in our souls. Now, that is bad news, and thankfully the story doesn't end there. In fact, immediately after the fall, we see a spark of hope already. Genesis chapter 3, 15, in that verse... God promises that one day there would come an offspring from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. That was the first promise of the gospel. That was the initial proclamation of hope in a Savior. So that's what happened. Sin, and then immediately a promise from God that a Savior would come. Now let's fast forward to today. Thousands of years since that that first promise in the garden, the hoped-for Messiah, the offspring of the woman, has come. Jesus Christ, the Son of, Son of God, he came, and, and he crushed the head of the serpent. Some 2,000 years ago, he defeated sin and death on the cross. And if you're a Christian here today, you're already experiencing a, a foretaste, a preview of that victory over sin. But the, the full victory is still yet to come. The full victory is still future. Evil has not been dealt its final blow. We're still waiting for full redemption. We're waiting for the day when our relationship with God will be fully restored. And so we live in this interesting time of the already, but the not yet. Christ has already come and dealt the first blow to Satan. But the full plan of redemption has not yet come to its full completion. 
Now, here's, here's where the passage that we're going to look at tonight, here's where this passage fits into the story. We, we live in this time of the already but not yet, which means that we are waiting. We're waiting. That's predominantly what we are doing as Christians today. We're waiting, waiting for Christ to come back and to finish what he started. And for this wait, God has given us a preview of what's to come. He's given us a vision of what the world will be like when redemption is completed, when Satan is finally defeated. And it's that vision that I want us to focus on this evening. The passage is Revelation chapter 21. So if you have your Bible with you, I don't know how many of you do, but if you have it, you can turn with me to Revelation chapter 21, verses 5 to 8, where we see this magnificent picture of what it's going to be like one day when Christ completes his work of salvation. Revelation 21, and we'll begin in verse 5. Revelation 21, verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this inherit- his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This passage we need tonight. Because we are tempted every day to wake up and to try to find satisfaction in what this world can offer us. This passage reminds us that full satisfaction will never be ours until this day when Christ comes back. And so the big idea, here's the big idea from this passage that I want you to walk away with tonight. It's that God will one day give us a new world, free from sin, in which he will be with us to satisfy us forever. God will one day give us a new world and there'll be no sin, no curse of sin. And in that world, God will live with us. He'll dwell with us to forever satisfy our souls. So this passage, really, it describes for us an incredible gift that we'll one day receive. And so in the first couple of verses of this passage, we learn about the giver of this gift. And then in verse 6, we'll look at the gift itself. And then the passage concludes finally with a guarantee for each one of us. So let's work through this passage looking at the giver, the gift, and the guarantee. First is the gift. The passage begins with words coming from somebody who is seated on a throne. This is the very throne of heaven, which means that the words that we hear in this passage come from the very king of heaven. So at this future time, when when this will take place, Jesus will have already put all of his enemies under the feet, and he will have handed over the kingdom to his father. And now the father, the eternal king of heaven, he sits on his throne, and he delivers the words that we read in this passage. So these are 
the king's words. These words, because they're the king's words, they will be carried out. This is a royal edict in this passage. This isn't just wishful thinking. These are words that will be fulfilled according to the king's sovereign power and authority. So we can bank on this happening. But the giver in this passage is not just king, he's also redeemer. Look down and and look what he says from the throne. He says, behold, I am making all things new. So one day the creator, the creator king of heaven is going to recreate everything. He's going to take all the brokenness of this world and he's going to fix it in a moment. He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth for man to live in with him. In the first verse of this chapter in Revelation, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So this world, this world we live in right now, will one day pass away. So don't put your hope in this world. God's going to give us a new world to live in, free from sin and death and pain and, and tears. In verse 4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Christ's work on the cross will have been completed, and sin and death will be no more. I love the way that Peter says it in 2 Peter 3.13, According to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. And here's how he describes the new heaven and the new earth. He says, in which righteousness dwells. We ought to long for this place where righteousness dwells. So the giver is king. The giver is redeemer. And we also see in this passage that the giver is faithful. He's faithful. Verse 5, also he said, this is an angel who is guiding John through his vision in the book of Revelation. The angel says to John, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. This is a guarantee of the truthfulness of God's word. When you, when you want somebody to be convinced of the reliability of something that you tell them, you might say, you can take it to the bank. Right? You say that when you, you're trying to convince somebody that you just said something that is true and reliable. John's being instructed to, to put God's word in writing because what he's hearing is a trustworthy word. When God says that he's making all things new, we can be confident that he will make all things new. He will make good on his promise. He's a faithful God. And the words that proceed from his mouth are built on the foundation of his character, and so his words will be fulfilled. And finally, the last thing we see about the giver in this passage is that he is sovereign. He says in verse 6, this is God speaking again, he says, it is done. In other words, he's saying, redemption is complete. The the plan that I began all the way back in uh, Genesis 3.15, that plan will have, at this time, been completed. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha and Omega, those are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. And so when God calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, what he's saying is that he is in complete control. 
He's saying that he is sovereign over all of history. He started history and he will bring history to a close. He was there at the beginning of time and he'll be there at the end of time. Isaiah 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. What a comfort it is for us to know that our God is sovereign over every event of human history. And one day, our sovereign God is going to come and he's going to fix all of the brokenness of this world, all of the evil of this world. As I was just reflecting on yesterday's events in France this morning, in God's providence, I came to a hymn. I read through a hymn a day, and in God's providence, I came to this hymn this morning. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus, who died, shall be satisfied, and earth and heaven will be one. There's a lot of wrong in this world right now, but God is one day going to come and make all wrongs right. And he's going to completely defeat Satan and sin and death. Now, up to this point, we've learned about the giver in this passage. Now let's consider the gift that he offers to us. And the first thing that we learn about this gift is that it is a satisfying gift. Verse 6, the second half of verse 6. To the thirsty, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life. God specifically says that he will give this gift to the thirsty. To be thirsty is to recognize your deep spiritual need. It's to recognize your desperate thirst for God. This is a gift that satisfies the deepest longings of your heart. But although every heart does thirst, not every heart recognizes that and acknowledges that. The promise of this passage is for people who know that they're thirsty, who've come to the realization that they need God to be satisfied. To truly thirst is to recognize that that you are spiritually poor and it's to mourn over your sin and it's to hunger and thirst for righteousness as Jesus says in Matthew 5. To truly thirst is to cry out with the psalmist. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God for the living God. Have you ever experienced that thirst? A longing for God. Spiritual thirst is a longing to be filled with all that God is for us in his son, Jesus Christ. Are you thirsty for God? Have you yet come to the realization that nothing in this world can fill you with joy? No amount of money, no amount of popularity, No sport, no boy, no girl, no amount of success, nothing in this world can satisfy your heart. There's only one, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can satisfy your heart. Are you thirsty for him? 
And to those who truly thirst, the prophet Isaiah offers this invitation. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without thirst. So if you want to be satisfied and never thirst ever again, you have to first recognize that you are thirsty. And then you have to come to the water. And for those who do come, their thirst will be forever satisfied. The second thing that we learn about this gift is that it is a life-giving gift. It's not only satisfying, it's also life-giving. Look again at verse 6. It says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life. So this symbolizes eternal life and all of eternal life's abundant blessings. From this spring flows water of life. It's life-giving water. Each year in the driest season of Botswana's calendar, Botswana is a country in Africa, each season in the driest, the dr- driest time of the year, a flood of water reaches what's called the Okavango Delta. And it's in southern Africa. The water, it comes from rainfall, which originated some 500 miles away in the heights of Angola. And when the water finally reaches the Okavanga Delta, it spreads out and across the lagoons and the channels, and it fills the floodplains. Now, the fascinating thing about this natural wonder is that the region, which was just a short time before the water got there, a dry and arid and lifeless place, it seemingly overnight explodes with life when the water arrives. It blooms with new vegetation. It draws in thousands of thousands of different species and animals from all over the desert. And for the few months that those floodwaters remain in the Okavango Delta, the region thrives with life. I think that one of the reasons that God gave this world the Okavango Delta floods is to teach us that water is life. Water is life. With water, life thrives and death is driven out. Listen to what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. Everyone who drinks of this water, he was pointing to the water in the actual well that was in front of them. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So when we drink this water, when we quench our thirsts with this water that's offered to us in this passage, it becomes in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And what is eternal life? John tells us in John 17, 3, that eternal life is to know Christ. It's to know God. That's what eternal life is. It's to enjoy fellowship with God. It's to be with God. That's what eternal life is. And uh, that brings us then to the next thing that we learn about this gift. And this is probably the most important part of this passage, is that the gift in this passage is God. The gift is God himself. The second half of verse 7, I will be his God and he will be my son. So if you'll come to him, God is promising to give himself to you. He's promising you a place in his family. 
He's promising to be your eternal father and to share heaven with you. He says that we will be his sons. And a few ladies are wondering, well, how do, why do I have to be a son for all of eternity? Don't worry, the guys, we have to be part of the bride of Christ. So it's even, all right? Actually, the, the idea that we will be sons of God is packed full of incredible meaning. We will enjoy an intimate relationship with God. We will relate to him as a father relates to a son. All that belongs to the father will belong to us. And the fellowship that we once enjoyed in the garden before the fall into sin will be fully restored and will be completely brought back into our relationship with God. And the sin that stands between us and God now will no longer be there. This new heavens and new earth will be an incredible thing. The sights and the sounds of the new heaven and new earth, they're going to be breathtaking. The landscape will be beautiful. The architecture will be like anything that we've ever seen. The taste of food will cause our mouths to explode. It's going to be a truly remarkable world. But the best thing about the new heaven and new earth is that God will be there. God will be there. That's the best thing about it. And if you don't understand that, or if that sounds boring to you, then you don't know God. And you don't know the gospel. God will be among us and he'll give himself to us for our everlasting enjoyment. So God is the gift. Now let's look finally at the third part of this passage and it's the guarantee for each one of us. And the guarantee comes in two parts. The first part of the guarantee is that those who trust in Christ will live. Look at verse seven. The one who conquers will have this heritage. Now, it sounds like this, this might be some kind of elite cl- class of Christians, those who conquer, those who overcome, but it actually isn't. Um, what we learn in 1 John 5 is that those who conquer are those who trust in Christ. 1 John 5, 5, who is it that overcomes or conquers the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So the promise of this passage is that those who trust in Christ will be with God forever. So what do you need to do to inherit this promise? What do you need to do to secure a place in heaven? The answer is that you need to do nothing but trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. The water is free for the taking. Look at the end of verse 6. It says that the water is given without payment. There's nothing that you can bring to the well. There's nothing that you can bring to the spring in exchange for the water. What you have to do is you have to come with empty hands, recognizing your spiritual poverty. Come recognizing that nothing else but the water which flows from the throne of God can satisfy you. And if you do come to the water, the guarantee is that you will become an adopted son of God. But there's a flip side to this guarantee. While those who trust in Christ will live, those who reject Christ will die. This passage, which is is just full of incredible promises for God's people, it ends with a solemn warning. Verse 8, 
But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Here's what you need to know about this last verse in this passage. If sin is the primary theme in your life, if sin is your master, if sin owns your heart, then you can have no confidence that heaven will be your eternal home. Those whose lives are characterized by sin demonstrate that they've never truly come to faith in Christ. So you might be here tonight and you profess to be a Christian, but let me tell you, if sin rules your life, you don't know Christ. The point is not that if you've ever sinned in any of these ways that you'll face eternal death. Rather, this passage refers to those whose lives are patterned after these sins. The, The issue is not perfection, but direction. Are you going in the direction of holiness? Not are you perfectly holy, but are you pursuing holiness? Those who live in sin reveal that they're not truly saved. And the guarantee of this passage is that they will be excluded from heaven. It says, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is, this is a description of eternal judgment. It's not easy to talk about hell. I believe that hell is a real place. And so to talk about it and to think that some of you might spend eternity in hell is not an easy thing to talk about. But love compels me to issue a warning to you that unless you turn from your sin and trust in Christ, your portion for all of eternity will be in a terrifying place of never-ending misery away from the presence of God. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So as we said earlier, if the best thing about heaven is that God is there, the worst thing about hell is that God is not there. The only thing, the only part of God that is in hell is his wrath justly poured out on unrepentant sinners. So the guarantee of this passage is twofold. Those who remain in their sin will receive this portion in the lake of the fire. But the good news is that those who conquer, in other words, those who, who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they will inherit the new heavens and the new earth, and they will dwell with God forever. Perhaps if you're here tonight and you recognize that if you were to die at this moment, you wouldn't go to be with God in heaven. Perhaps the Spirit is calling you right now, and you want to be with God forever, and you want to drink of the water of life and never thirst again. If that's you, then I want you to listen to this invitation from Revelation twenty-two seventeen. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Christ is holding out to you the offer of the water of life that flows from the throne of God the water that can satisfy you for all of eternity. And all you have to do is come with empty hands. Come to the water. 
Come to Christ. Place your faith in Him, recognizing that only He can save you from your sins. God will one day give us a new world, free from sin and the corruption of sin. And it will be a perfect world in which He dwells with us to forever satisfy our souls. And when we reach that new world, we will never thirst again because we will forever drink from the river of the water of life that flows from the throne of God. You can come to Christ today and you can begin drinking of that water that he offers you even while we wait for that future day when we will experience the full satisfaction 